Just want to say a special thank you to Josh, Eliana, Hannah, and Tobin. Haven't we been blessed this morning? And the blessings are just beginning. Our speaker today needs very little introduction to most of us. We know him as Mary Lou's son, Colleen's husband, John and Jenny's dad. And uh, Mike told me that he has been a member of the Village Church for 52 years, being baptized in the Village Hall. How many of you remember Village Hall? Okay, see several hands. Uh, when he was 12 years old, 52 years ago. Uh, Mike has been a special blessing to, I know, our youth ministries here. Uh, he has a little place down in Oregon that uh, our Pathfinders love to go to, youth groups. We've done summer camp down there. Uh, most people in business would be thinking about how much money you could make out of a beautiful place like that. Mike thinks about what a wonderful ministry it can be, and it's been a wonderful ministry to many, many young people. We're thankful for that. Mike, we're happy to welcome you to the Village Church pulpit today. So I'm looking for a show of hands here. How many, if any, were here the last time I spoke at the 11 o'clock service? Oh, no, 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 that was Sabbath school. I'm talking about the 11 o'clock service. Is there even one hand? It was about 40 years ago. <laughs> and some of you folks remember Pastor Johnson at Village Hall and others that have come and gone since. And uh, just in case I don't get to speak for another 40 years, you better sit on your watches, okay? Or just throw them out. One, one pastor, he gets up and he puts the watch on the you know, pulpit and whatever. And he says, you know what that means? And somebody said, it's meaningless. <laughs> so we're going to have another prayer before we get going. Father in heaven, we've experienced heavenly music. Thank you for gifting these young people to having actually written some of the music we heard this morning. With an army of youth rightly trained. Father, we are grateful for this day and for each individual here today. Those who are watching via television or internet, Lord, give us all a blessing today in Christ's name. So I have a few shout-outs, okay? Just in case I don't get to do this until I'm oh, 90-whatever, um, or 100-and-whatever. Um, yeah, 104, yeah. A shout-out to Darren Shore, Jim and Noel Pemberton, Jenny and John, of course, and a relatively unknown guy that I got a text from yesterday who said he'd be watching, John Bradshaw. First of all, church family, thank you for your prayers. And it's not just church family. There are friends and, and uh, people who've driven in from out of town uh, here. Thank you for your prayers. Just a little cancer update. Uh, Cancer does not increase the death rate. Neither does war. 
the death rate is near 100%. You factor in Enoch and Elijah, it's about approximately 100%. We're all terminal. We're all terminal, unless Jesus comes first. Or like Enoch and Elijah, something very unusual happened. And Jesus, on his way to his death, said, no sad tears for me, please. And this phrase, I did not coin it, okay? We used to always say that God has three possible answers to prayer. Yes, no, and wait a while. And we're finding through Scripture, and Scripture's like all things work together for good to those who love him or, and who are the called according to his purpose, and you are called, but few respond. Um, somebody mentioned it to me from out of town, that God only has two possible answers for prayer. Yes, and even better. Now you might think getting cancer is not even better. But does God know what's best for us? His whole goal is to get us in, right? And it doesn't matter happens what happens in between if you live to be 109. I don't care. If Jesus doesn't come first, you're going to die. And uh, uh, the other night, Colleen said, Mike, this backache's just going on too long. It could be sepsis. You know, she's a nurse. She got me out of bed. We went to the hospital and I'm rather grouse around, whatever. And the guy says, Well, we're not going to know if it's this simple thing or this simple thing unless we take a CT scan. I'm going, Big bucks. I'm going, Oh, no. Couldn't talk my way out of it. They did it. And he comes back and him and haw around. Well, we need to take another CT scan. That's two $7,000 procedures in one night. And at 10.30, he comes back hat in hand and says to me, you're at the beginning of a very long journey. Well, I hope it's a long journey. Um, Cancer is a little little bit like going to Oxford, okay? You've been to Oxford, no doubt, some of you. And if you graduate from Oxford, uh, Dr. Daly understands this, um, it doesn't really mean anything. Okay, he said, well, it must must mean you're smart. It doesn't mean anything. It's a marketing term. There is no one Oxford University or no one Cambridge. There's at least 50 different universities or more at Oxford, some of them good, some of them bad. All of them different. Some easy to get into, some not so easy. But that's what cancer is like. It's kind of a catch-all label, like, yeah, they're all kind of in the same area, And people will come up to me and say, you know, my sister-in-law had vaginal cancer, and she did this, and if you'll just drink this. Almost every day I have to say, you know, I'm under care. So people that have cancer, especially terminal cancer, don't be offering solutions because all cancers are, that's over a thousand different kinds of cancer. I have three. All of them are incurable. one of them is called clear cell. That's what we hoped for. And we got it. And then they said, you don't want chromophobe. And we got it. They told me there was only three different types of kidney cancer. It's not pancreatic, but really just as bad in certain ways. Uh, then the pathology report didn't come for days and days and days. And And finally, they said, you know, you're a very unusual patient. And finally, the doctor called us, and the surgeon, and he says, "Um, 
you know, um, I see more than average uh, of this type of cancer, but it's very rare. You know, you have the clear cell and the chromophobe, but he says you have another one called unclassified. I haven't heard of that one before. And yeah, you're stage four, but this is grade four unclassified. And in medicine, the higher you get, the worse it is. Okay, it's, it's the most extreme. So you, you, now you have an update. I finally found from one of the world's three experts. I said, well, how long do I have to live? And he, he said, well, he wouldn't say, wouldn't say, wouldn't say. I said, months? Well, no, at least a year. So, um, But with your prayers, God, with all things are possible. So um, I'll talk a little bit more about this uh, in, in a minute, or really not a minute. So for those of you who came expecting a sermon today, we're not having one. Uh, we're not having a sermon. I'm sorry. There's, if you look in the bulletin, it doesn't say sermon. It says testimony. That's what's going on at ASI. And if you need to leave, it won't bother me at all. That happens all the time. You've got appointments. You've got the roast on. You've got the whatever in the oven. But I was told, don't worry about the time. So, sorry. What are they going to do, fire me? (laughs) So, really what this is all about is how God changed my goal from gold medal to something better. Now, most of my life, no, I shouldn't say more. A great deal of my life, a long time ago, it seemed like a lot part of my I wore one of these a lot, okay, one of these. Uh, it's a bib. You wore a bib, too. A little different looking. And uh, I wanted to do something big for God. There had n- never been a U.S ski racer that had ever won gold in the downhill. So naturally, that was my goal. You know, I don't aim for little things. We just came back from Priest Lake, and uh, my buddy Jerry said, uh, uh, tell you about an experience. You were out there, and you hadn't barefooted in a while, and you kept falling and falling. You wanted to do a deep water barefoot start, which is much harder. And his wife said to him, why doesn't he quit? He's a Talay. So I saw some kids racing at Spout Springs. I wanted to do it. I signed up. And uh, that became my passion. I wanted to do it for God. Gold for God, right? A lot of self in there, but you, you, know, you, you, you rationalize. And uh, so you'll get an idea of what my life was, we have two videos. Now, it's ten minutes, sorry. First one's about seven minutes, so you really get an idea of, of what downhill's all about. And the second one's three minutes. It's the Hanenkamm. Remember in Wide World of Sports, Franz Klammer just careening down, you know, and, you know, that was the Hanenkamm. And the reason I threw that clip on there is because I've raced the sister race to the Hanukkah in South America in Portillo, Chile. Let's go ahead and run that at this time.
nestled in the stunning Jungfrau region in the Swiss Alps. The downhill in Wengen, Switzerland, is a unique venue that has become synonymous with downhill ski racing. When you think of Wengen, the race is called the Lauberhorn. It's, it's all about tradition. It's the longest running downhill race in the world for World Cup, or even beyond that, before the World Cup even started. That's one of those races that there's just so much tradition, so much following. It's just one of those huge classics that you definitely want to, you want to win that, you know, in your career. Well, Wengen is like the most beautiful place on earth, first of all. There's no place more beautiful when the weather's perfect. You have this run that's 2.85 miles long in the most beautiful place on earth, and it's all yours. See how fast you can go down it, see where you can grab your tuck, see how much fun you can have. It has everything. And coupled with the fact that you have to take a train to the start to get there, I mean, there's just so much about Vangen that I think makes it the essence of downhill. The energy of downhill is Kitzbühel. The essence of downhill is Vangen, the Laberhorn. Laberhorn is an adventure. It's not just a downhill course. Laberhorn starts when you go up with the train. I mean, when you go up and you look out of the window and you see all these mountains, uh, you, you, you get impressed by the nature. And uh, suddenly you feel that you are an actor in the middle of this nature. As the essence of the downhill, the Laberhorn is a greatest hits compilation of all things that make a downhill great. There is no other race that captures so many aspects of the sport. Bengen is definitely a, a unique race. I mean, it's, it's almost like, it almost stands alone like a different event in certain ways. It just is so, it's so long and there's, it breaks into parts. You have 45 seconds, almost a minute, until you get to the top of the Hunshaft. It's 85 miles an hour glide turns, way up high, no reference of anything, like you're, you're out in the middle of nowhere, so you're just ripping along a couple little jumps, but basically not a whole lot going on. And then you go, you slow down from 80 down to 30 or 25. Shaft means elevator shaft. It's, that's exactly what it is, man. It's rocks on your left, the old net fence that comes out on the right. It just comes in like a little like narrow slot, and you just come up and just drop off this thing. And I've hit it good sometimes in one train I didn't hit so well where I boosted the whole thing around the flats. It's a good like 70 foot drop pretty much, you know, it's huge. It's the opposite. It's like you go from totally open at the top where you're just cruising to like narrow, confined spaces when you're in the air, you know, you're 15 feet off the ground flying and you go right by the corner of that fence, you know, when you go off the Hunshaft. And then you go right up against the next fence when you do that bank turn over that, that roll. And then you go down onto a road that's only 
less than a car lane wide and you're going 75 down that with a fence on one side and a hill on the other and then you go through two 90 degree turns at 70 miles an hour you'd never be able to make those turns i don't think on a motorcycle or you know at that speed When you come out of the tunnel in Vangen, and you're going, oh shit, man, <laughs> my legs are burning already and I got like a minute to go. And, uh, and that's the truth. I mean, I don't care how great a shape you're in, you're feeling your legs at that point. And then you come over all these rolls and you know, you're tucking down and it, they inject it with ice, right? So you see the net coming and you kind of are looking at the net because that's where you need to know where to start edging your ski to set up the last two turns. And uh, at that point, all you're trying to do is get as high and stand as tall as you can with the wind pressing at your back, but keeping your arms in front of you, just to get a little bit of blood to flow into your legs so you can pull off and get skeletally aligned and just pull off those last two turns. If you think you're gonna come into those last two turns and just use muscle, you're gonna end up on your back and into the net. dark and you're you know you're right into a huge compression at the bottom you're already two minutes into the race so um you know, your legs are completely cached you can't see well anyway because you got no blood to your head you're, you're all the blood in your body is going to your big muscle groups to keep your to keep yourself standing up and you start to essentially black out because you things go gray and you're, you start to get tunnel vision comes in and then you have you know into stump alley in the last two turns which are two of the most aggressive technical turns in all of downhill skiing you know, 75 miles an hour, you come off double camber turns and then a jump into the finish, into a huge compression into the finish. It's like four downhills all kind of stuck together into one. There's no other downhill that's as long, as physically taxing, or as, as taxing technically. To win that race, you have to have every facet of, of downhill skiing completely dialed in. If you want to win Vangen, you got to be in great shape and you got to be smart and know how to ski those last two turns. The Lauberhorn is easily the longest course on the World Cup circuit, nearly a minute longer than any other World Cup race. This course stalks racers, wearing them down and then pouncing with a cruel test at the end that evaluates not only an athlete's physical conditioning, but his desire to succeed. There is perhaps no better test of an athlete in any sport than the Lauberhorn in Wengen, with elements that require strength, mental focus, power, finesse, courage, and above all else, endurance. This timeless downhill course has created legends and destroyed careers. It is difficult to imagine any other venue in any other sport that demands so much from an athlete. There's nothing bigger in the ski world than racing in the strife, especially the, the self-accomplishment of, of being able to attack that thing top to bottom. 
You have no chance for fear. You have no chance for fear to set in at all on the strike. Once you do that, you've already lost. separates the strife from any other World Cup track is the top 30 seconds. You have no chance to build into this race. It's like in your face from the moment you kick out of the start and it's game on. Dropping a compression. Looking way ahead. Getting ready for the big carousel in the style hung. demands full commitment. It's super icy, really bumpy, it's dark. You don't have a chance to like relax for a second here. This is where I can pretty much make or break your run. Coming to Altaschneise, it's a big blind air dropping into this next pitch, which pulls you to the right. And you have a lot of speed building up there, and then up going to the sidelong sprung. It's really important to just get back into that full tilt pin mode. I mean, you're not thinking about anything else but just attacking. It's all or nothing here. You have to, like, get everything going, take all the speed across the side hill, and it's hang on. I mean, it's bumpy. you see that you're clear, you're just letting it go and shoot into the Zilschuss right there. This is the fastest part of the course. This is where you're tired, or you're trying to be as smooth and relaxed as you can. And then it's like the home stretch coming up. That moment of crossing the finish line, you hear the crowd erupt and you've made it down the stripe. It's just the most intense feeling in the world of skiing. That last word wasn't supposed to be there. It was supposed to be clipped. So why in the world would a Christian young man do anything like that? You know, they don't, it's like animal videos. They show you that, you know, the terrible stuff. They don't tell you how you start. First of all, everyone is required to section the course, go down, side-slip the course. Um, when you start feeling comfortable, you, you stand up and do the whole thing. When you start feeling more comfortable, you, you start tucking in certain places. And uh, for every race, there's somebody or several called the forerunner. Have you ever heard that in Scripture before, the forerunner? It's 
quite a few times, but only once rep- uh, applied to Christ. Hebrews 6.20. He's our forerunner. And sometimes race day, it's very different than training. He said they inject it with ice. They inject it with water, and then it turns to ice because they don't want soft snow. They want it ice. That way it doesn't rut up so bad and whatever. And uh, often the forerunner will call back on the radio. You know, turn three is completely different. It's, you know, they've, they've, they literally take brooms and sweep all the snow off of it, Okay. And so you get advanced information. That's what Christ has done for us. Now the question is, how does he change your goal when it's the wrong goal? I mean, you might be wanting to do something for him, but he wants you to do something else. It's called surrender. And... uh, My last season, I'm racing races like this in South America. Um, the last one, the Hanukkah, the sister race to that is the one in Portillo. And since it has, it has to be an international race, they have to have a certain amount of vertical. So it goes beyond the lifts, and it starts at 19,000 feet. Okay? So the highest mountain in continental United States, 14,000 and some change. Okay? Just the train ride to get there takes you higher than 14,000 feet. Unfortunately, that train doesn't exist anymore, and someday, if you want to see the pictures, I'll show you that incredible train. You pass by Aconcagua, 23,000-foot-high mountain. There's a place down there they call Piesta del Condores, the place of the condors, you know. And you see a big shadow, and you, and you think it's an airplane, and it's a, it's a condor. And uh, one Sabbath because I never had to race Sabbath, even though my ski team, they tried to get a dispensation for me from the Pope. And I, I you know, as, he's not my guy. But anyway, so this one Sabbath, I, down at Portillo, I heard about the Christ of the Andes. You know the one in Sao Paulo. And, and, but this is one on the border between Argentina and Chile. Okay? And... Uh, the uh, last person that went there was one of the Kennedys during the wintertime. He was shot at because they think you're trying to cross the borderline. Yeah, you know, when you're young, it's, they won't shoot at me. Yeah. Anyway, so how to get there? So you throw your skis onto the train as it's going slow, and you're running in your ski boots, and had two bums, maybe angels, not pulled me on, I couldn't have made it. Finally, you know, I couldn't, with my ski boots, I couldn't. So finally, it's, it's, it's here. So I dump out and whatever with seal skins up to the Christ of the end. It's beautiful. And uh, so then it's race day, and I go through a snow... And no, before race day, I go through a snow fence. It's terrible. And so there's some nervousness and whatever on race day, and this guy with motor drive caught this unbelievable... And it's, there's this bump that Billy killed kid. Remember him? Um, our best downhiller at that point. Broke his back arm. And... Uh, Basically, um, race day, I'm completely sideways. It's a huge bump with a fallaway off-camber turn to the left, and I somehow pulled it off and got international FIS points, which I was pretty young, and so that's very important for start position. 
came back to the United States. And, you know, Lord, is this, I've been doing this racing for quite a few years. Is this what you really want me to do? And God often is silent. And finally, you know, Isaiah 7, verse 11 says, Ask of me a sign. So I said, Lord, I just, I've just got to win one race this year. I'd won races before, and it wasn't an unusual thing. People would come up to me and say, who do you think is going to win today? And it's hard to not say you think that you're going to win. I mean, that's what I usually thought. Anyway, uh, unless it wasn't a downhill. What, the reason I kind of got into downhill is that's always one as juniors and intermediates and on your way up to Class A Downhill was always hold on Sunday, and so I... The first slalom I ever raced was an international slalom, if you can believe it. So, um, God just won one race this year. Okay, Lord. So my season starts out in South America because, you know, you can be on snow 20, uh, 20, uh, 12 months a year. And uh, I was back, and for some reason, my points did not... Um, did not come through. There were too many Americans in that race, and so I didn't get these really great international points. That's okay, you know. Snowbird downhill, I'll get them then. I miss a gate. I'm in my tuck with my head down, and I'm to the left where I should have been to the right. And I'm so disgusted, because it was an easy section. And... uh, uh, my dad came to that one, and he says, well, how do you get down this place? You just have to go straight down. It's between rocks. and There's no other way. And he just, like, froze. Anyway, so on race day, he couldn't be there on race day. Uh, I just caught full air the last 25% of the, of, the, of the run because I knew I'd be disqualified and still had one of the three fastest times of the day. That's okay. I'll get him at such and such. By the end of the season, I only had one more race left, and I hadn't won a race that year. I'd go to races, and they'd say, you know, here's some guy from Sun Valley's here. Yeah, that's, that's neat. I knew I was the guy. And uh, one time I tried to psych everybody out. You know, this was not a God-approved thing. And, and uh, on the pre-run for the race, you have to wear your bib, and so they know I'm the guy from Sun Valley. And... Up to this point, it had been just slushy, terrible, rainy, whatever. It was the Seattle area, Crystal Mountain. There is an actual downhill, an international downhill there. This was a, yeah, it was an international race. It was, but you start in a very weird place. But the morning of the pre-run, it had frozen solid. You couldn't even put your ski pole in. It was blue. And I thought, man. I'm going to psych all these guys out. I'm going to, nobody, nobody was taking it hard. I tucked it right in my top. And I just blew out in the first corner. <laughs> Good for me because you come to a place called Butterfly and people were breaking their backs and doing all kinds of stuff on Butterfly because normally you just kind of light on your... You fly off this now and into the uphill because of the speed. You notice in that last video, there were lines, okay, there's a perfect line. Our forerunner has, has skied slash walked for us, the perfect line. And we say, oh, yeah, but he was God. Yeah, but he lived his life entirely as humans can. He said, even the words I speak are not my own. The Father, he doeth the works. 
You know, we sing those songs like, Live out thy life within me, O Jesus, King of Kings. He can. The whole second half of the gospel, you know, I mean, there's three parts to the gospel. But uh, we talk a lot about what he's done for us, okay? And, and that's wonderful. But then we need to also talk about what he wants to do in us. And there's a preparation required for heaven. A lot of people think that, you know, he hurt nobody. <laughs> but, there, you know, we were expecting a, a king when he came the first time, and we got a lamb. Now we're expecting a lamb, we're going to get a king and a judge. We need to read not only the, the salvation text, we need to read the lost text. The lost text in Scripture. Because that's part of the gospel. What he wants to do in us. But we can drag our feet and we can put our heels in and we cannot follow the line. He says, you know, just let me, let me, let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. But we have other, other things we want to do. Not now. And we wake up and we're a little sleepy. You know, we'd watch too much TV and whatever. And we, we have good intentions about having our morning devotions, but I'll get it in later. Job had found a remedy for that. He said, I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary bread. And uh, Adelaide Esteb in 1943 discovered that secret. And he said, I will never again, Lord, feed my body until I first have fed my soul. You don't miss many meals until you do it. And that's just the beginning. There's, there's three parts of the gospel, like we say. You know, what he's done for us at the cross, what he wants to do in us, and eventually what he will do to us. Glorification. Justification, sanctification, glorification. Four in and two. Well, we're already after 12. If you need to leave, please do. There's a point to this. It's not just uh, Mike telling stories. In fact, there's several points and I'm wondering if the deacons could hand out these blue cards at this time. And I'll just keep talking while we receive these cards. These are not, this is not a decision card. This is just a handout. You can throw it away. You can do whatever you want. There's pencils in the back of the pew. And I would be grateful if you would at least check one box on here. You don't have to, but it would be, it would be nice. And then just keep it in your Bible or wherever. So these are lessons that I've learned, not only from ski racing, but from life and following him. He has the perfect line. You know, I, I had a coach one time, and he said, Mike, I can tell you the perfect line, but unless you can feel it yourself, he says, I haven't done you, you any good. Christ wants to get us so that when obeying him, we're but carrying out our own impulses. It's, duty becomes a delight. So the first thing in following Jesus is to stop and evaluate. Am I his? We say, of course I'm his. I'm in church. A lot of people are in church for a lot of different reasons. 
I remember reading something about from the 1800s about a certain church, uh, I think it was the Adventist church, and somebody saying not one in 20 is ready to close out their earthly history. It doesn't mean that one in only 5% will be saved, but we do know that the majority of the church forsakes the church. At some point, things get tough, and it's, no, no much, it's not much fun anymore. And so there's trouble ahead. We need to stop and evaluate. So this first thing on the checklist is, am I his? Our scripture reading for today um, was, uh, was kind of interesting. Um, everybody remembers the second part. They don't remember the first part. Um, John 10, 25 through 28 Jesus is talking here. I have told you, he said, and you don't believe. I'm reading from the voice translation, Thomas Nelson, 2012. The works I am doing in my Father's name tell the truth about me, but you do not listen. You lack faith because you are not my sheep. Ouch. He would know. My sheep respond as they hear my voice. Remember the last part of the Sermon on the Mount? There were a wise and a foolish. Now, don't turn there. I want you to just see if, see if you remember. What was the difference between the wise and the foolish? The f- wise, what? They did something. What about the foolish? Did the foolish do anything the same thing the wise did? They both heard. One heard and did it, and one heard and didn't do it. That's interesting. The capstone of Christ's Sermon on the Mount is about doing. Hmm. You certainly think it would be faith in Christ. My sheep respond as they hear my voice. I know them intimately, and they follow me. So Christ's sheep has two characteristics. Number one, they hear, and number two, they follow. What does it mean if we only hear but don't follow, or only follow but we're really not listening? We're not a sheep. Sorry. Sorry. So none of the rest of this means anything if we're not a sheep. So how do you know? How do you know? How how would you really know? You know, judge not that ye be not judged. Jesus said also, he said, okay, through the whole Bible is a manifestation of Christ. He says, judge with righteous judgment. Have you read that one lately? Or by their fruits you shall know them. You can never know motive, but you can be a fruit inspector. And in your own life it's most important. When you are his, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Behold, all things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. Have people noticed that in your life? Wow, he went through a really transformation. The Bible becomes a new book. Words and sentences will start jumping out at you. You can't get enough. Romans 16, verse 26 comes into play. Till we come to the obedience of faith when duty becomes a delight. God writes his law in our heart. Um, 
our best energies are on his agenda instead of some made-up goal about winning gold in the downhill, being the first American and doing it for God. Right. Come on. So if you were to describe my life in just a few words, I've noticed it's may my plans fail that his may succeed. And this song, and blessedly I won't sing it, okay? This song um, used to be sung of yesteryear. Yesterday I prayed for gold. Okay, you get it why I'm, I'm interested in this song. For houses, wealth, and fame. I prayed that I might honor thee through mighty deeds and fame. But all my gold has turned to dust, my houses to decay. Forgive me, Lord, and hear my prayer today. Take thou my selfish heart, thy love to me impart. Help me to labor every day to help some wanderer on his way. May I thy life so live, in service gladly give, and when the victory is won, may I have lived to hear, well done. O Lord, this is my prayer. And I hope it can be all of our prayer. We, we have wrong goals. So how did God change this goal? Well, I didn't win a race. And the last one's coming up. It's at Mission Ridge. And it's not that hard of a race. And I've done well there before. It's not international or anything. But I have a good start position. And you really do well when you have a good start position. And you earn that by, by ranking. And uh, so I drove over from Sun Valley, and a couple of days I'm welding and making something for my dad, and, and dad says, hey, you want to go over to Sun Valley? I said, why would I want to go to Sun Valley? We just can't, I just drove from there. Well, have, have a nice trip. Last time I ever saw my dad alive, okay? Good thing I didn't go on the flight. Um, later uh, that day, we heard that the plane had crashed in Lad Canyon on their way back, looking at a pickup, because we were going to do a big adventure that summer together in mining and fun things and whatever. And uh, I never cried until the funeral at Mount Hope when they did a missing man formation with crop dusters. And on the news broadcast, right at noon, hello, Americans, this is... Paul Harvey, stand by for. News is simply the plural of the word new, okay? And he talked for a minute and a half about my dad. Usually he would say, today's obituaries include so-and-so and so-and-so. And then he said, for the Talay family, Easter this year is twice the tragedy and twice the victory. So... I believe this, the funeral was on a Friday. I had already done my pre, pre-run for the downhill on Thursday. It's a fun downhill. You just drop out of the starting gate and you don't touch the snow for the first 15 or 20 feet. 
And uh, there's some really fun rollers and stuff like that, nothing hard. And uh, on Sunday, I was up there to race. Of course, races were always multiple days. It was like I fell every race, but it didn't matter. Tolays don't quit. That winks for you, Mom. I got 23 jeans from you and 23 from Dad. Both of them wouldn't quit going around the island water skiing one day again and again and again. Finally, the boat driver says, we're going to run out of gas, and they've been out there two hours. Each one, they're not going to let go. Finally, they sink both together at the same time because neither one wants to give an inch. That's, that's my genes. Okay, so... Uh, go up for the race on Sunday, and I see one of my old teammates from the Anthony Lakes ski team, if you can believe it. And uh, cocky Mike Tillet isn't as cocky anymore. And uh, I see Sherry, and she, oh, wow, good to talk with him, whatever. And I say, Sherry, I'm going to quit ski racing unless I win today, and I know I'm not going to win. The only race I ever went into, just admitting defeat. Because I could see the way the season was going. and God had a corner for me. And uh, so I quit racing and went whatever, tried to go into medicine, and finally another plan failed. My organic chemistry teacher said, Mike, maybe you weren't cut out to be a doctor. <laughs> you know, uh, Dr. Daly will tell you, you've got to remember the first two quarters to get through the third quarter. You can't forget about it. You can't do synthesis without remembering the first two quarters. And usually when you do a quarter, you just check it off and then you go to the next one. It doesn't work that way. Anyway, so uh, what to do now? I'm not doing good and whatever. Mom's running the business. Um, so I'm thinking this could be an out. So I tell my, I was chemistry and religion major, I tell my professors, I'm going to take a little leave of absence. Well, you be sure to come back and whatever. And I never came back. And I hated business. I wanted to do something big for God instead of being faithful. And one night I was coming back on an all-nighter from Frankfurt because I had gotten an invitation to the National Prayer Breakfast. It's very easy. All you do is pay a big bunch of money, and then you get to see Mother Teresa speak. Not currently, but uh, 18 you know, heads of state and... Uh, the, there are more world leaders in that room at the Hilton in Washington, D.C. from the National Prayer Breakfast than any, almost any gathering outside of the United Nations. And uh, I had heard about, uh, Bob Martin had told me about this movie called Cool Runnings, a true story about how the Jamaicans, on the very first try in the Olympics, were going to possibly medal, and that never happens. You've got to, you know, for 20 years, you've got to, the, the Germans and then the Swiss and the whatever... You just can't do that. And it was a true story that they almost meddled the first time out. He told me how they crash at the end and whatever. I'm going, yes. Even though the movement cool, cool running's on, there are four seats on this all-nighter in the 747. Flip them all up and go to sleep. I mean, never watch a movie when you can sleep. So um, in the middle of the night, I wake up, and there's the crash scene. And I've never seen it before. I just start bawling. I have no idea why. It's got to be, I'm tired, right? And so I look to my left. Oh, good, nobody's awake over there. And look to my right, and there's two eyes focused on me. 
think I can go right back to sleep and she can think I'm crazy, or I can go over there, and you know me, I engage. She was a baroness, Alexandria Baron von Groff. Just coming from Germany, you might expect there might be some German-speaking people, and I said, the movie's not that sad, right? Because she was watching it. She says, right. So I said, I suppose you wonder why I'm crying. I said, yeah. So I said, I have no idea why. And by the end time we got to Washington, D.C., she had figured out it was because I never got to prove whether I was going to be able to meddle or not. I hadn't cried about that ever until this morning when I saw that video. Man, talk about heartstrings. Okay, so um, I'm failing at a lot of things in life and hating business. And uh, you discover God when you need Him. He discovers you, you know. And you think you're a member of the church in good standing and you're checking off all these lists. But am I His? That's the single most important. Are your best energies for Christ? Of whom do you love to think? Of whom do you love to talk about? These are some... some. So if you are his, you can put in your own words whatever at another time so your neighbor won't see what you wrote down. Like, I don't know, or I hope so, or yes. Would other people say that about you? Okay. So number two, submission. That enables following. And... Uh, There's a couple of texts there if you've got your blue thing. One of them says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. There are many people who believe that that's the clearest text in all of Scripture of what it means to be a Christian. To die is gain? Yeah, I'm dying right now, okay? But Christ says that's that's gain. And unless we learn to die daily... I mean, Mary and Joseph got up one day and with all the hoopla and all this stuff, they lost sight of Jesus and they didn't find him for three days. So we can have a momentary lapse in our following Jesus. Let's not. Yes, I'm committed to Christ and others are more important than myself. I don't have a Kleenex. I'm going to use this bib. So you're for the committed. There's a yes. Number two, Lord, if you have a better plan for my life, please show me. And any of these that you feel are appropriate to check, please. This is just your personal thing. Number three, humility frees us. Then we can follow him. So first I lost out on my big goal. Mm, Eventually you get other goals and whatever. And then I lost my business. Then I lost my house. Then I lost my health. And I'm thinking, I see a trend here, okay? And people say, well, Mary Lou wouldn't let him lose his house. I had a paid-for house, no mortgage, and I started over with zero in the same house. Is that losing your house? I think it is. And uh, I used to have a caretaker down at Ritter, and I couldn't afford it anymore because I lost my job too, okay, business, job, whatever. 
And uh, one day I walked into the YMCA and uh, the new, we've gone through a lot of change at the top there, and he says, so what do you, what do you do? I just smile and say, I, I clean toilets. And I meant every word of it because that's what I do at Ritter for the last five years or more and couldn't this year because of this cancer. Well, he says, you must be very successful at it because it, it costs a lot to be in the men's center. So it's something we all need. Okay. So while we're evaluating number four, I would like a couple of dear friends to come sing a song while we're evaluating number four. And it's the greatest joy in life. And you can come on up, uh, Bruce and, and uh, Steve. It's the greatest joy in life. You know, it says in Nehemiah 8.10, For the joy of the Lord is our strength. And while they're singing, just think about this in number four. And this is a five-minute song, so don't worry. And if you need to leave, that's fine. And then we'll just have a couple of words and then a prayer afterwards. Softly and tenderly Jesus is calling, calling for you and for me. At the heart's portal he's waiting and watching. Watching for you and for me. Come home, come home, home. ye who Oh 
and for me. Why should we linger and heed not His mercies? Mercies for you and for me. Come home, come home, ye who are weary, come home, earnestly, tenderly, is calling, calling, oh sinner, come home. Think of the wonderful love he has promised, promised for you for me. Though we have sinned, He has mercy and pardon, pardon for you. about that for harmony. Wow. Thank you guys. Knock them dead, man. So what in the world are we singing a song about sinners? Unless we're a sinner, we don't need a Savior. We need to admit it. You know, uh, there's lots of quotations around. I love the one from Einstein. Make everything as simple as possible, but never simpler. As soon as you make something simpler than possible, it's not true. Here's another one. It comes from a book called Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing. See if it relates to cancer or your life or whatever. Let's just see. The Father's 
presence encircled Christ. In case you want to get that book, it's a wonderful. Thoughts from Mount of Blessing, page 71. The Father's presence encircled Christ. And nothing befell him but that which was, but that which infinite love permitted for the blessing of the world. Here was his source of comfort. You know, we believe that. The Father's presence encircled Christ. Nothing came to him but what was for the blessing of the world. And he prayed some prayers that God said no to because he had something even better. So we get it with Christ. The Father's presence, nothing befell him. Here was his source of comfort. And it is for us. He who is imbued with the Spirit of Christ, and that's the substantive word there, he whose Christ abides in Christ. The blow that is aimed upon him falls upon the Savior who surrounds him with his presence. Whatever comes to him comes from Christ. So no sad tears for me, please. Pray for the people that are on the edge of eternity and don't know it. And then do something to help them. That's my prayer. Let's pray. Father in heaven, um, don't let us be like the text in the book of Job. For God speaketh once, yea, twice, yet man perceiveth it not. Not even hearing your voice. Or worse yet, hearing it and not doing it. Help us to be both. Not just today, but every day this week. Help us to listen. And quietness makes more distinct the voice of God to the soul. Time alone with Jesus. That's my prayer, and thank you, Lord, for meeting with here, us here today, not just here, but those on the Internet, those on the television. Draw us close to you, in Christ's name.